0: The party soon became a permanent fixture on Savannah's social calendar. It was, in the words of the Georgia Gazette, the party that Savannah socialites lived for. Or lived without, for Williams enjoyed changing his guest list from year to year. He wrote names on file cards and arranged them in two stacks, an in-stack and an out-stack. He shunted the cards from one stack to the other and made no secret of it. If a person had displeased him in any way during the year, that person would do penance come Christmas. My outstack, he once told the Gazette, is an inch thick. For the better part of an hour, Williams had taken me on a tour of Mercer House and his antique shop, which was quartered in the carriage house. I told him that as I was coming up the walk earlier, I had heard the guide on one of the tour buses talking about this house. "'Bless their boring little hearts,' said Williams. "'What did the guide say?' "'She said that the house was the birthplace of the famous songwriter, Johnny Mercer.' "'Wrong, but not completely off-base,' said Williams. "'What else?' Uh, "'That last year, Jacqueline Onassis offered to buy the house and everything in it for two million (sighs) dollars.' "'The guide gets a C-minus for accuracy,' said Williams. He picked up a decanter of Madeira and refilled our glasses.' And now I'll tell you what really happened. Construction of the house was begun in 1860 by the Confederate General Hugh Mercer, Johnny Mercer's great-grandfather. It was unfinished when the Civil War broke out, and after the war General Mercer was imprisoned and tried for the murder of two army deserters. He was eventually acquitted, largely on the testimony of his son, and released from jail a broken and very angry man. He sold the house, and the new owners completed it, so none of the mercers ever lived here, including Johnny. Late in his life, though, Johnny used to drop in when he was in town. Williams leaned back and sent a thin stream of cigar-smoke ceilingward. "'I'll come to Jacqueline Onassis in a moment,' he said, "'but first I want to let you in on another piece of history "'that the tour guides never mention. "'It's an incident I call Flag Day. "'It happened a couple of years ago.' He stood up and went over to the window. "'Monterey Square is lovely,' he said. "'My opinion it is the most beautiful of all the squares in Savannah. The architecture, the trees, the monument, the way it all fits together. Movie makers love it. Something like twenty feature films have been shot in Savannah in the past six years, and Monterey Square is one of their favorite shooting locations.' The film crews are invariably rude. They leave piles of litter. They destroy shrubbery. They trample the grass. One crew even cut down a palm tree across the square because it didn't happen to suit them. Well, the rudest bunch of all came to town a couple of years ago to film a CBS made-for-TV movie about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. They selected Monterey Square for an important outdoor scene, but naturally we were not consulted. The film crew dumped eight truckloads of dirt onto the street and spread it around to make it look like the unpaved streets of 1865. The next morning we awoke to find the square full of horses and wagons and ladies in hoop skirts and a thick coating of dust all over everything. It was intolerable. The cameras were in the middle of the square aimed directly at this house. Several of my neighbors asked me as a founder and past president of the Downtown Neighborhood Association to do something about it. I went out and asked the producer to make a thousand-dollar contribution to the Humane Society, to show his good intentions. He said he would think it over and get back to me by noon. Noon came and went. The producer never responded. Instead, the cameras began to roll. I decided to ruin his shot. And this is how I did it. Williams opened a cabinet to the left of the window and took out a bolt of red cloth. He held it up over his head and unfurled it with a snap of his wrist. It was an eight-foot Nazi banner. I draped this over the balcony outside the window, he said. I bet that stopped the shooting, I said. Yes, but only temporarily, he said. The cameraman switched to the other side of the house. So I moved the flag to the window in the study. They eventually got the shot they wanted, but at least I made my point. Williams rolled up the banner and put it back in the cabinet. The furor it caused was something I hadn't expected. The Savannah Morning News splashed the story across its front page, complete with photographs. They wrote vituperative editorials and published angry letters. The wire services picked it up, too, and so did the television network evening news. I found myself having to explain that, no, I was not a Nazi— that I had used the flag to create a time-warp in order to stop some very inconsiderate filmmakers who were not Jewish, as far as I knew, but I did make one terrible oversight. I had forgotten that the Temple Mikveh Israel Synagogue is located directly across the square. The rabbi wrote me a letter asking how I happened to have a Nazi flag handy. I wrote back saying my Uncle Jesse had brought it back as a trophy from the Second World War. I also told him I collected relics of all sorts of fallen empires, and that the flag and a few other World War II items were simply part of that group. But I gather you haven't been ostracized. Oh, not at all. Six months after Flag Day, Jacqueline Onassis came to call. I was down in my basement workshop restoring furniture when the doorbell rang. I sent one of my assistants, Barry Thomas, up to answer it. He came running back downstairs, all out of breath, and said a tour guide was at the door and wanted to know if I would show Jacqueline Onassis and her friend Maurice Templesman through the house. They were in the house an hour or so, said Williams. They looked at everything. Mrs. Onassis was very down-to-earth. She invited me to come visit her in her hovel the next time I came to New York. When they left, she asked how to get to the nearest Burger King. ''What about offering to buy the house for two million dollars?'' I asked. She did nothing as crass as that, but she apparently told Templesman in front of the tour guide, who reported it to the newspapers, of course, that she wished she owned the house and everything in it. ''But not Jim Williams,'' she said. ''I couldn't afford him.'' As I was listening to Williams, I was only half aware of a key turning in the front door of Mercer House, and of footsteps approaching in the entrance hall. Suddenly a sharp voice cut the air. God damn it! God damn, bitch! A blond boy stood in the doorway. He appeared to be about nineteen or twenty. He was wearing blue jeans and a sleeveless black T-shirt with the words Fuck You printed in white across the front. His sapphire blue eyes were blazing. ''What seems to be the problem, Danny?'' Williams asked calmly, without rising from his chair. ''Bonnie, goddamn bitch, she stood me up. Damn it, I ain't taking her shit no more!'' The boy grabbed a vodka bottle from the table and filled a crystal glass to the brim. He gulped it down. He glared at Williams. ''Gimme twenty dollars. I need the money. I'm pissed off.'' ''What do you need it for?'' ''I need to get fucked up tonight, if you really want to know.'' "'Now, Danny, don't go doing that and driving your car. "'You'll get arrested for sure if you do. "'You've already got charges against you from the last time you got, uh, quote, fucked up. "'They're really going to nail you this time.' "'I don't give a goddamn about you or Bonnie or the goddamn police.' "'With that, the boy turned and abruptly left the room. "'The front door slammed. "'I'm sorry,' said Williams. "'He got up and poured himself a drink.' "'That was Danny Hansford. "'He works for me part-time, refurnishing furniture in my workshop.' "'Williams studied the end of his cigar. "'He was calm, controlled. "'I have hypoglycemia,' he said, "'and lately I've been blacking out. "'Danny stays here sometimes to babysit me when I'm not feeling well.' "'It may have been the Madeira or the atmosphere of frankness "'that Williams had inspired with his stories,' At any rate, I felt free to observe that blacking out alone might be preferable to having this person running loose in the house. Williams laughed. Actually, I think Danny may be improving a little. Improving? Over what? Two weeks ago we had a similar scene, but it ended a bit more dramatically. Danny was agitated that time because his best friend had made a disparaging remark about his car and his girlfriend had refused to marry him. Then he came back to the house and carried on about it, and before I knew what was happening, he had stomped a small table, thrown a bronze lamp against the wall, and slammed a cut-glass water pitcher on the floor with so much force it made a permanent imprint on the hot pine floorboards. But he wasn't through yet. He took one of my German Lugers and fired a bullet into the floor upstairs then he ran out the front door and fired another shot into Monterey Square, trying to knock out a street light. Naturally, I called the police, but when Danny heard the sirens, he tossed the gun into the bushes, ran indoors, flew up the stairs, and jumped into bed with all his clothes on. The cops were no more than a minute behind him, but by the time they got upstairs, Danny was pretending to be...